This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. A warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us for another busy hour ahead. The Dow's summer rally stands at an impressive eight for eight. The blue chips bulls refusing to be underweight. Tesla revenues a musk read, but I have to say price cuts do great. And Netflix subscriptions jump, but sales guidance in a weaker state. And the Women's World Cup kicks off in New Zealand. I hear England's team is pretty great have to say it. Plenty of types today too. We've got an update um, from football excitement to global market enlightenment in the United States. Tech getting pecked pre-market as Netflix, Tesla and IBM results fail to meet lofty expectations and valuations based on the recent rallies for these stocks. Details on their earnings reports just ahead. Europe, in the meantime, as you can see, solidly higher after a mostly lower handover from Asia. Japanese stocks pacing the regional declines with the Nikkei off more than 1%. Just to be clear, though, context, it's still up more than 37% year to date. China's central bank, in the meantime, leaving interest rates unchanged, and that dashed hopes for more economic stimulus as deflationary fears there grow. Inflation? Of course, still the key economic concern, this time in Turkey, the country's central bank hiking interest rates by another two and a half percentage points. That takes base rates now to 17 and a half percent, eye-watering levels to be sure. But the second underwhelming stab at controlling pricing pressures in a row. Analysts, in fact, were expecting rates to rise to 20 percent. In the meantime, the violence in Ukraine fueling volatility in commodities. Wheat prices turning higher after some earlier weakness, currently up by around 1.5%. Just to give you the context on this too, wheat up some 15% in price terms the past week as Russia exited that Black Sea grain deal and now appears to be targeting grain infrastructure in the south. And that's where we begin today's show with another terrifying night in Odessa. Russia using a combination of missiles and drones to target the key Black Sea port city for the third straight night. At least one person died in the attack. Ukraine says its air defenses were able to intercept just a quarter of those missiles overnight, as Alex Marquardt reports. This city has never seen anything like this since the beginning of this war. I can't overstate the terror that the citizens of this city have had to experience over not one, but the last three nights. And it is no mistake uh, that Odessa is home to Ukraine's most famous port. I want to show you some of the destruction from last night. This is an administrative building. It looks like uh, it was around four stories high. You can see it has completely collapsed. Uh, We are told this is still a search and rescue operation. We know that at least one young man was killed. There were several people who were injured. You can see those firefighters trying to put out the fires in this building, uh, both uh, from among the rubble and up on that ladder up there. There are firefighters, there are rescue workers. 
Uh, there are volunteers and, and residents of this neighborhood who are just trying to make sense of what we experienced last night. We are on the edge of the port, uh, the, one of the, the biggest port in, in Ukraine, which we can't show you for security reasons. But that is almost certainly why, according to Ukrainian authorities, uh, Russia has been carrying out these strikes on Ukraine. Now, this attack started just before 2 a.m. local time. It was a combination of drones and missiles. We could hear those drones very, cl uh, very clearly buzzing the rooftops in downtown Odessa. I want to play you some of the uh, video that, sorry, we're just going to get out of the way of these, this water. I want to play you some of the video shot by photojournalist Scott McQuinney uh, of one of the explosions of uh, the missiles here in Odessa last night. Take a listen. That is the kind of thing that we heard for an hour and a half. Now, it was not just Odessa that was hit. It was also Mykolaiv, which is another southern port city. There, 19 people were wounded. This was an incredibly sophisticated attack. Almost 40 drones and missiles. Most of the missiles got through. Uh, Russia used long-range strategic bombers, supersonic bombers. They used four different kinds of cruise missiles. They used those Iranian kamikaze drones. Just the symbolism of what they use uh, is sending a very large message uh, to Ukraine. Uh, President Zelensky has said it is very clearly Russia trying to target the grain infrastructure just a few days after Russia pulled out of that critical grain deal. And thanks to Alex Barkart there in Odessa. OK, let's move on now to some football fever and to be specific, female footy fever. The Women's World Cup is underway and it's being held in the Southern Hemisphere for the first time. The two host nations are already in action this Thursday. New Zealand stunning with a win over Norway in the opening match and Australia also beating Ireland. At both matches, a moment of silence was observed too before kickoff after a shooting in New Zealand claimed two lives. Now Amanda Davis joins us now. Amanda, this is very exciting. Not only ex an expansion actually of the number of teams that are playing and therefore the number of women, but I believe actually the price, the prize money for winning this up 300% since the 2019 World Cup, which pleases me greatly. Not there yet, but improving. Yes, I think it's fair to say, Julia, that anybody you speak to involved with women's football says huge progress has been made, but there is still a very long way to go. And I was lucky enough to co-host the draw for this tournament back in October in Auckland. I was there on the stage alongside two-time winner Carly Lloyd, and you couldn't help but get drawn along by the real buzz and momentum looking ahead to this tournament, which is set not only to be the biggest ever football women's World Cup, but the biggest ever women's sporting event on the planet. And I think it's fair to say the opening day has been a real roller coaster of emotions with that news emerging in the hours before the opening game in Auckland of the deadly shooting that had taken place in the centre of Auckland, taking the lives of two people, putting a number of others in hospital. World football's governing body uh, FIFA did release a statement having spoken to authorities and the police and the, the governmental officials in New Zealand confirming it was completely unrelated to the tournament, but just really awful timing when the momentum and the excitement had been building. So as you rightly said, both the game 
in Auckland and Australia, holding moments of silences ahead of the action kicking off. And you could see just what this moment meant for both of these two sides. New Zealand, a team who had never before won a match at a Women's World Cup. 15 matches they had played, 15 matches they had failed to win. And then in their 16th, they finally got that victory on home soil at Eden Park. Such an iconic sporting victory. Ali Riley, the the captain who is playing in her fifth World Cup, who has represented her nation across the world playing domestic football. She was overcome with emotion uh, in the end, saying, you know, she has done it. This is the statement that they really wanted to make. And they're hoping that this will be a real platform to to bounce from as the tournament goes on. And then it was over to Australia. Australia, with the really bad news, announced just an hour before kickoff, just at full time, with uh, New Zealand's victory over Norway, that their talismanic captain, Australia's all-time record goalscorer, Sam Kerr, had been ruled out, not only of this, their opening match against the Republic of Ireland, but also their second match against Nigeria, having suffered a calf injury in training on match day minus one yesterday, <laughs> as uh, people <laughs> away from football know it. That was could have been a really, really telling blow. But Sam Kerr, being Sam Kerr, she was there on the sidelines cheering her side on. It was Steph Catley, the person who took over the captain's armband for this one, who ultimately scored the goal that made the difference. So both of the host nations are off to a winning start. And if today's football is anything to go by, we really are set for a pretty special month of action. Of course, all roads leading to that final in Sydney, Australia, on August the 20th, Julia. Yeah, I can't wait. I was going to ask you about uh, England's prospects, but we've run out of time, which is probably a good thing. (laughs) We've got plenty of time to discuss in the future. (laughs) Great, Great to have you with us. Thank you, Amanda. Okay, no World Cup trophies just yet for tech. The star players of the Nasdaq beginning to report second quarter results and investors... Unimpressed, let's call it that. With the state of play so far, shares of Tesla, IBM and Netflix are all lower pre-market as their results underwhelm. Versus great expectations, let's be clear. The Nasdaq up some 37% year to date. But lots of pressure on the high-tech high flyers to deliver and justify their rich valuations. And that's the key to Claire Duffy joins us now. Let's talk about Tesla because I think we got record quarterly revenues earnings, lower margins because they've been cutting prices. I wonder whether some of the disappointment was tied to perhaps a production slowdown or what we didn't hear about things like the Cybertruck. Yeah, Julie, I mean, I think there's a lot for Tesla to talk about here. And the company did sort of hint that they would be having a summer slowdown in production in some areas. But the big question going into this report was these price cuts that the company has been making in recent months due to increased competition over EVs. And the question has been, how was that going to weigh on the company's results? The company reported better than expected increase in profits, earnings of $3.1 billion, up 20% year over year. But as you said, that profit margin is lower, 18.2%, which is lower than the 25% that the company reported a year ago. 
And so I think you're starting to see those price cuts weigh on the company's earnings. Uh, you know, as investors in some ways were sort of expecting, but, but, you know, this is going to continue to affect the company through the rest of this year at least. Yeah, still one to watch. And what about Netflix too? I think this is a story too of um, great expectations, whether it was the crackdown on password sharing or the additional ad-supported tier that was supposed to bring in more revenues too. What do you make of these results? Yeah, I mean, it was a big report for Netflix in terms of its subscriber numbers. The company added 5.9 million global subscribers, bringing its total to 238 million. That's huge. After the same time last year, the company lost 1 million subscribers. The company's revenue grew to nearly $8.2 billion, but it missed expectations. And so I think you're seeing, you know, the company's goals, these sort of strategies, this rollout of the paid sharing and the ad-supported tier are starting to pay off, but it still has a long way to go. I think you're also seeing investors react to this actor strike and this writer strike in Mm. Hollywood that could start to impact the company's ability to create content this year and going into next year. Yeah, it's also going to save some costs, at least in the short term, but you have to assume there's going to be a catch up afterwards. But I think that chart of the share price sees everything in terms of the reaction today. They've gone a long way higher this year. So um, a little bit of a modest reaction makes sense to me. Claire, thank you. Great to have thank you, you with us. Now to the latest on the U.S. soldier who fled into North Korea. Private Travis King was supposed to be sent back to the United States, but after passing through airport security in Seoul, he reported his passport missing and didn't board the flight. The next day, while visiting the demilitarized zone, witnesses say King dashed across the border. Will Ripley is there and reports from near the DMZ in South Korea. The Korean DMZ, the demilitarized zone, is one of the most heavily fortified border areas in the world. That's the reason why you have barricades and spike strips in all of these military checkpoints to try to prevent people from being able to go in or come out. There's a reason why this road has tank traps. Basically, if a tanks were to come rolling down, they would blow up to stop an invasion from the north to the south. And the north has similar booby traps set up as well. So obviously, it's a highly secured area. How did this U.S. Army private just run across? Well, we're learning that on Monday at Incheon Airport, about 90 minutes drive from where I'm standing right now. He was supposed to get on an American Airlines flight to Dallas, but he told uh, after going through all of the procedures, all the security right at the gate to the plane, he claimed that he had lost his passport and was escorted back outside of the airport. Somehow made his way here on Tuesday where he was able to board, uh, get on a tour. He had booked a tour. It was apparently the passenger manifest was approved by the United Nations Command, and he, along with about 40 other people, took a bus down this road over this unification bridge and uh, less than five miles that way is the joint security area where he was able to basically according to others who were on the tour with him run across ignoring the calls of guards and get into a North Korean van where he was whisked away now where he is now after being in North Korean custody for Wednesday and now Thursday still an open question because the North Koreans have not released any information publicly and it may be quite some time before we officially know anything about this soldier's whereabouts or when he might have a chance of getting back to the U.S. Will Ripley, CNN, in South Korea near the DMZ. Okay, coming up here on First Move, Google's billion-dollar drive to improve job seeker skills, helping them bridge the digital gap and climb the jobs ladder. That's later in the show. Stay with us. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. 
There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. We're only halfway through the year and already extreme floods in places like India, wildfires in Canada, Switzerland and Greece and tornadoes in the United States have not only put lives at risk, but have also meant heartbreaking scenes like this when property owners return to survey the damage and then calculate the cost to rebuild. And that's where insurance plays a vital role. According to the Swiss Re Institute, the research arm of the insurance giant, global economic losses tied to natural disasters reached $270 billion last year of which less than half was covered by insurance. And it's not just the extreme weather that matters. Rising inflation also means that the cost to fix the damage has soared too. Two years ago as well, Swiss Re warned that with no action to redress climate change, the impact of global warming could slice a massive 18% off the global economy by 2050. And some countries in Southeast Asia could lose half of their GDP by mid-century. Joining us now, Jerome Hegley. He's the Group Chief Economist at the Swiss Re-Institute. So fantastic to get you on the show. Let's just start by talking about natural catastrophes and the extreme weather that we've seen. I believe last year was the fourth highest on record in terms of losses. And judging by the weather this year, I'm assuming a similar kind of growth rate. Yes, absolutely. And you are saying it and we are feeling it, uh, whether you are in, the, in North America and the US or whether you are in Europe or in Switzerland, the frequency and severity of um, natural catastrophe, of climate change is very much interacting also with uh, uh, the environment, with the economic environment. And we are seeing more heat waves. We are seeing more precipitation of, uh, of rain, but also more floods. And uh, in terms of Global economic uh, losses, if you look at our Sigma, uh, Swiss Re Sigma records actually had about $270 billion uh, of losses. And if you look at what drove it last year, Hurricane Ian. And if you look at Hurricane Ian, it's actually the second costliest uh, hurricane after Hurricane uh, Katrina. So definitely uh, a very serious uh, environment with climate change having a real impact uh, on economics. There's two drivers here. It's not just the losses that we're talking about that result from the natural catastrophes. There's also the replacement cost, as I mentioned in the introduction of whatever needs rebuilding. And due to the high levels of inflation that we've seen globally, that's also contributing to the loss rates that we're seeing and the, the lack of insurance cover, I believe, in, in certain cases. Just explain the sort of double whammy that we've seen of high inflation impacting us too. No, absolutely, and, and, and you, you, you said it, this double whammy. 2022, if you think about it, Hurricane Ian just mentioned, it was really the perfect storm in terms of the inflation shock interacting uh, with, uh, with natural catastrophes. Higher inflation means higher prices, and higher prices, what does it mean? It, might, it means also higher costs of replacing uh, goods of replacing um, physical uh, goods, but also of, of uh, costs of physical uh, losses. So that, 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 that's why it's really important uh, uh, to act and keep obviously the risks on the check. Uh, 
by various uh, means, but yes, uh, absolutely, the inflation shock has greatly increased uh, uh, the loss of, uh, of the climate effects uh, that we had seen last year and probably will, will continue uh, to see as we speak. And that's the key. Insurance to me is about planning for the unexpected. Uh, you pay a premium and then if something goes wrong, um, you're given then the cash back to, to rebuild your life in whatever way is required. But if events like we're seeing happen regularly enough, we start talking about things being predictable on an annual basis, then insurance yep. is surely no longer the right product because it's predictable rather than unexpected. I know you're an economist rather than a scientist, but are we getting to the point where you have to go back and look at the sort of risk pricing models that you're using and say some of these events um, sort of fall into a different category? Yeah, well, for sure, if if the event is always happening at the same place, if, if, if the, the, right. uh, a certain uh, predictive uh, nature of frequency, it doesn't make sense in the first place to build there. And there we need to have uh, uh, clarity as well. In, when I think about building zones, don't build where you're always going to uh, be exposed, right, uh, to, uh, to to floods uh, or to the hurricanes. So that's point mm. uh, uh, number number one. And yes, the risk of uh, climate change. That needs to have a price. And talking as an economist, I think what we need to do is we need to internalize uh, the costs uh, of uh, climate change because it's an externality which has great effects in terms of the environment, in terms of also our well-being, but it also will have great effects, significant effects on, on regions, on the global uh, economy. And uh, if, if you don't act uh, today and now, the costs are just going to increase. The flip side is, and I think that's also an important point uh, to make, is that if you invest into adaptation uh, to, uh, to mitigate the effects of uh, climate change, you also do something very much, not just for the environment, but also for economic uh, growth. And I very much uh, believe that once we get the inflation shock uh, under control, and price stability is also super important because lower prices will also make it cheaper uh, to fight uh, climate uh, change. Um, we should also allow for more investments into sustainable infrastructure, for example. Yeah. I mean, there's a growth, there's a great uh, growth multiplier there. Yeah, we have to talk about that because I've mentioned the worst case scenario of not doing enough or anything to try and hit those Paris targets and the, the cost to the global economy as a result. But you've also done research into the cost of transition and the impact on businesses and that it is desperately unequal in terms of impact around the world. How, in your mind, based on the data that you have and see, is the best way to tackle financing this gap? That's a great question. Thank you. So how do we best, uh, what, what is, first of all, what's the climate financing gap and, and how do we pluck the holes? Well, we also did some research in terms of climate financing uh, gap, looking at uh, uh, the decarbonisation, what is needed to get to net zero by 2050. And what we find and confirmed by, by other uh, literature out there is you need actually about 10 trillion uh, dollars Per year, so we're not talking billions. We are talking trillions. There's 10 trillion dollars missing in terms of uh, financing to get to to decarbonize our economies and to get to net zero. And 10, 10 trillion dollars, we know, is huge. It's about the size of uh, China. 
definitely it is possible. If I look at what's out there and I here come to the solution, if I look at what's possible, how to get the financing uh, rolling, fact is five, only about 5% of, uh, of debt out there, debt instruments out there are really sustainable. So, so sustainable debt or sustainable financing is still a niche and we need to get niche become uh, mainstream. We need to lower uh, the investment barriers, especially for long-term investments, mm -hmm. lower investment barriers for green and sustainable infrastructure investments. That, yeah, that would go a long way to actually narrow these climate financing gaps. Yeah, I looked at your research on this so as well. So basically we you, need to create these markets. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was just going to say, I looked at your research on this and you were talking about the imposition of a global carbon tax of $100 per metric ton. And you looked at the earnings capabilities of companies in utilities, materials mm. and in the energy sectors, and they would obviously be the most impacted and would lose between 40 and 80 percent of their earnings per share as a result. I mean, there's a lot of industry players that are saying a carbon tax is unworkable, but you understand the resistance in some of these industries when you see numbers like this. Um, Jerome, in the short term, sort of final question, what what concerns you most or what actually gives you greatest optimism of all the talks that are being had about financing the shift Wait. in climate change, particularly for poorer nations? Because the talks are happening. The greatest optimism, I think, cause for optimism is that we understand now we need to get the clim climate financing piece right. And there's a lot of attention there. And I think if you look at the last COP uh, event, that's where we had some, some breakthrough. The biggest cause for not being so optimistic is that a lot of pledges out there need to make sure that pledges also turn to actions. But yeah. I think it's good um, that we also see the costs of, of the climate change and again, put a price tag of climate change. And absolutely, CO2, it needs to have the correct level of price at 50 or $75 per ton. It's just too cheap. It needs to be at least $100. Having a CO2 tax, tax is not going to be a silver bullet, but we have to start somewhere. Yeah, okay. That's a whole separate conversation. And we'll come back to that. Um, great introduction to you and, and your work at the Institute. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jerome. Fantastic to talk Thank to you. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you sir. Mm. Okay, so to come, Hollywood studios embrace artificial intelligence as actors strike over the use of the technology and more. A look at how AI is already being used in movies and what jobs could be at risk as a result. Next. Welcome back to First Move with U.S. stocks up and running on a pretty turbulent Thursday for technology stocks. The Nasdaq beginning the session lower after underwhelming results from Netflix and Tesla. The Dow, though, higher after posting its eighth straight winning session on Wednesday, its longest winning streak in almost three years. Solid earnings results, though, in the space beyond tech, drug giant Johnson & Johnson, as well as American Airlines upping their profit forecasts. United Airlines seeing a strong third quarter, too, as demand for tickets remains strong and energy prices remain relatively tame. Here is a look at how Tesla and Netflix are faring in early trade, shares of both companies sharply lower at this moment. Netflix, in fact, taking the biggest hit, down over 6%. Now, Netflix may be celebrating a bump in subscribers, but now there's the angst over the race to provide fresh content to keep them. Why? 
Well, Hollywood actors and screenwriters continue to strike. And one issue they say is the potential for studios to use less humans and more technology like artificial intelligence. Ardonio Sullivan looks at how the technology is in fact already being adopted. This is where we started. It's an automated solution for cosmetic and de-aging work. Dr. Jones. Through some technological wizardry, 80-year-old Harrison Ford looks exactly like 40-year-old Harrison Ford. Do you understand how they did that? Not completely. <laughs> In the latest Indiana Jones movie, Harrison Ford is de-aged for a flashback where he fights the Nazis. It's not photoshopped or anything. It doesn't look that way. Hollywood studios are moving beyond traditional visual effect technology and embracing artificial intelligence, turning to companies like Mars. What does Mars stand for? Monsters, aliens, robots and zombies. I think that's the best name I've heard for a company. Thank you. The latest Spider-Man movie released in 2021 features villains like the Green Goblin and Dr. Otto Octavius, characters who haven't been seen in years. Uh, so they took the villains from previous uh, versions of Spider-Man movies and they wanted to bring them back in that moment than when they originally performed that character. So without naming names, we helped Marvel do that on a certain character. Mars says its de-aging AI technology knocks thousands of man-hours off the visual effects process, but they say they aren't killing jobs. The demand for visual effects way outstrips the supplies, but there are a finite number of artists in the world that are able to execute on that demand. Mars has also built an AI dubbing tool aiming to make awkward, out-of-sync voiceovers like these a thing of the past. Mars uses deepfake technology to reconstruct an actor's lips to match the dubbed audio. They tried it out on me. My name First, is we sent them this short clip I shot in a CNN studio. That I've always been terrible at speaking any language other than English. In fact, I struggle with English sometimes. With that... They were able to do this. Je m'appelle Donnie O'Sullivan. Je suis un correspondant de CNN et j'avoue que j'ai toujours été nul pour parler une langue autre que l'anglais. That is very impressive. Je ne parle ni l'arabe, ni l'allemand, ni le japonais. Mais peut-être que toute cette nouvelle technologie. My lips look French. I don't know who you are. This technology can even put other people's words in your mouth. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. My fellow Irishman as well. LipDub was built for the purpose of allowing studios to take content in their native tongue and put that content across the globe in a way where it looks native to the viewer. For its part, Mars says it is not in the business of replacing actors. Its technology is meant to enhance performances, not create them. I think it's not a question of the technology, it's how you use it. Look, you know, I could be hit by a bus tomorrow, and that's it, but my performances can go on and on and on and on and on, and outside of the understanding that it's been done with AI or deep fake, there'll be nothing to tell you that it's not me and, uh, and me alone. Fears of how AI will be used is partly why SAG-AFTRA, the actors' union, is on strike, saying the studios want to replace them with artificial performances. The movie studios are pushing back on that claim. Technology cannot replace an actor full on. So you cannot go head to toe and redo the entire face and expect that to be photoreal. The technology just isn't there right now. Now, as it relates to writers, I think 
they can more easily be replaced by artificial intelligence. Joni O'Sullivan, CNN, Toronto, Canada. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show, like Hannah Einbinder and Jean Smart. Hack Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. Welcome back to First Move. In the United States today, 6 million people are looking for jobs. Now, the good news is there's nearly 10 million vacancies out there. The bad news is employers say they can't find the people with the right skills. In fact, 65% of HR professionals believe that their own organization suffers from a skills gap, according to U.S. publishing giant Wiley. Now, a crucial part of this gap comes from a lack of college education, whether or not a specific role even requires it, but also things like digital training and data skills. And that's where Grow With Google's project comes in. It's a $1 billion program providing digital training in key areas such as IT support, project management, and data analytics. It also offers industry-recognized qualifications that have helped tens of thousands of people move into higher-paid jobs in tech. And joining us now is Lisa Gavalba. She founded the program. She's also the chief marketing officer for Google Americas. Lisa, fantastic to have you on the show. Grow with Google in your own words, how you recognize that people within Google actually could help provide skills to 21st century workers that they need but don't yet have. That's right. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, we started Grow with Google based on an important value that we have at Google, which is that the opportunities that are created by technology should truly be available to everyone. And one of the ways we knew we could add value is by sharing our expertise to help fill that digital skills gap. Explain what some of the courses uh, are actually like. And I understand that, I mean, the data here is clear, two thirds of Americans actually don't get college degrees, but a lot of these jobs say a college degree is prerequisite. You don't care about previous experience or the level of education for those that that take the courses. Is that correct? That's right. Um, There is this really important problem in our society that most jobs that have great career potential and pay well say they require a degree, but most Americans don't have one. So we created an alternative, uh, a pathway to get to great jobs. And it's called the Google Career Certificate Program. And we know that people are amazing learners. So all we needed to do was help them get the knowledge and the skills they needed. So we teach six different career fields. It's all taught by Google experts and it's all online on demand. So people can do it um, when they have time and at their own pace. Most people will finish in three to six months of part-time study and they can get into really in-demand high-paying careers like data analytics or cybersecurity, IT support or digital marketing or project management all things that are really in demand. There's there's about two and a half million open jobs just in our six career fields right now in the US. And these certificates are being recognized by employers. I know you run a sort of dating or a matching scheme as well with potential employers, which I think is important too. It's not just a, a nebulous course that you do, you try and help with that too. And even colleges, I believe now, the separate courses are looking at these qualifications and saying these are worth having for our students. 
That's right. Th this opportunity is so large that even Google can solve it by ourselves. And what we're excited about is we have over 150 big national employers, people like Verizon, Walmart, Accenture, Deloitte, and of course, Google, who are hiring um, our graduates of the Google Career Certificate Program. As a matter of fact, when you finish the program, you instantly get access to our job board with thousands of jobs in it and um, that you're already qualified for. And it's really exciting also to see educational institutions get excited about helping people earn these amazing certificates and really learn the in-demand career skills. So we work with over 400 educational institutions right now, everything from high schools to community colleges, and now even to prestigious four-year universities as well. Something that caught my attention, and we talk about it nonstop on this show, is um, the use of artificial intelligence. And one of the ways that you're also helping some of these people is with interview practice which I think is so important because most people, even if you're doing this online, that's one thing. Actually being in front of somebody or having to talk to a stranger and tell them why you want the job is tough. Explain the use of artificial intelligence and how that helps these individuals practice for a hopeful future job. Yeah, that's right. Interviewing really can be daunting and we know that practice makes people better. So we created a special tool. We call it the interview warm-up tool. You can find it by just Googling interview warm-up tool. Um, and it helps you practice. As a matter of fact, the questions are generated by experts in the field. So they're asking you um, questions that are about the career field that you're applying for. And then you get to practice the responses and it gives you feedback. Um, so really, really useful uh, way for you to brush up your skills and, and get feedback before you're, um, before you're doing the real interview. It's super useful. I should ask very quickly, Lisa, how much do these courses cost? Do people have to pay to, to do them? Yeah, so the courses cost at $49 a month, and most people finish in three to six months. Um, but if needed, there's also scholarships available. Yeah, but the accessibility of that relative to other forms of education is, is vast. Okay, to continue the point about artificial intelligence and these conversations, when I look at some of the trainings that you offer, data analysts, IT support specialists, I sort of... I wonder what proportion of these businesses, at least chunk of these um, future careers, will be replaced by technologies like artificial intelligence, by some degree of automation. I sort of feel if you were, a, again, a parent looking at your child and saying how and where should you head, whether it's before you get to the workplace or for someone in the workplace, how do you know that something that you're training for isn't going to be sort of taken over by a computer or, or technology before you've even really got there? Yeah, for, for sure, uh, technology is going to have an impact, as, as it always had. Um, but we think it's really a great complement uh, to people's skills. It's going to really assist us as we all try to um, expand on our creativity and become more productive. I think it'll be an important tool. And as a matter of fact, I think new jobs will be created that didn't exist before. Um, just as they have historically. Uh, imagine flight attendants before there was commercial uh, aviation. Um, and it's really exciting to think about what the possibilities will be when people have these tools at their disposal. So how do you prepare in that case? You stay flexible, you learn and expand your ranges as much as you can and not panic about the things that you don't know about the future and the jobs that don't yet exist. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And also, uh, you know, our focus is really on teaching people not just the technical skills they need to be successful in these careers, things like data analytics, but also really durable skills that'll be needed no matter what. Things like problem solving, communication, critical thinking. We actually teach all of those durable skills as part of the Google Career Certificate program as well. Yeah, fantastic to get you on. It's interesting to hear what's, um, what's going on behind the scenes at some of these big tech companies. Lisa, great to have you on. Thank you very much for your time. The founder Thank of you. with Google. Thank you. Okay, so to come, the allure of the Cote d'Azur. There's plenty of that. Richard Quest is in Nice. Nice. Finding out what makes this holiday destination so nice. Welcome back. Now, for a long time, capitalism was a dirty word in Cuba. Well, now budding entrepreneurs have more freedom to explore, but no place to learn the ABCs of business. Patrick Ottman reports they're now getting a bit of a crash course, courtesy of the U.S. government. A business seminar and a hotel meeting room may not seem that groundbreaking. But not long ago in Cuba, where all capitalism used to be outlawed, it would have been impossible to imagine. All the more so since the man teaching this business boot camp, organized by the U.S. Embassy in Havana, is Cuban-American development expert Gustavo Arnavat, who left the island as a young boy to flee Fidel Castro's revolution. He's been invited by the U.S. government to share his knowledge with Cuba's trailblazing entrepreneurs. What they need is, uh, they need capital, they need an idea, they need persistence, they need to really work through very difficult times. Every entrepreneur is going to have good days and bad days. Some bad days are going to be extremely challenging. They probably want to, you know, give up. Again, no different than any other country. But here's particularly difficult. Particularly difficult because for decades following the 1959 revolution, all private enterprise was banned in Cuba. Cubans were required to work for the state. Then following the collapse of the Soviet Union, official prohibitions on self-employment slowly began to ease. The first entrepreneurs in a generation here face a unique problem. There are no business schools, scarce knowledge that can be passed down about self-employment. Cuba's budding capitalists have had to learn by doing. One Carlos Blaine has turned a side business selling hamburgers into a restaurant franchise, a small supermarket, and a logistics company. Altogether, he says, he employs more than 60 people. Attending the business boot camp, he says, helped him to identify areas of future growth. We've done courses on e-commerce, marketing, risk capital, private financing, he says. They're very current things, very modern, and things that we can use a lot. Even though the U.S. government says it wants to help Cuban entrepreneurs, U.S. economic sanctions intended to impact the Cuban government also hurt business people here, making it all but impossible for them to access the U.S. banking system or receive financing. The U.S.'s top diplomat in Havana says the Biden administration is studying if sanctions can be eased for Cuban entrepreneurs. There's a shortage of food, there's a shortage of gas, there's a shortage of water. The Cuban state economy is no longer able to provide for its people. And the answer to that is not a necessary evil private sector, it is more, better, more empowered private sector. So far, the U.S. Embassy in Havana says about 200 entrepreneurs have taken this boot camp. And the hope is that they can move beyond the decades of hostility between the U.S. and Cuba to not only transform their lives, but their country. Patrick Gottman, CNN Havana. 
Now, the dazzling Côte d'Azur conjures up images of fabulous frippery yachts, designer clothes and permatans. In fact, it sounds a little bit like Richard Quest to me. And he was there too, apparently for work, he says. Hmm, watch this. This is the amongst the most spectacular, expensive and desired destinations in the world. The Côte d'Azur. This is where the Alps meets the Mediterranean. And here, they do things all a little grander. A place where, to be sure, the rich and famous rendezvous, where celebrities stalk the Cannes Film Festival red carpet, and billionaires preen on their mega yachts. If you want a drink, it's a martini, and it must be shaken, not stirred, and preferably at the Monte Carlo Casino. You know, that's not half bad. Now, I don't want to overstate it, but the thing about Nice is it is a little less snobby than the other places on the Côte d'Azur, than Cannes, Saint-Tropez, and certainly perhaps Monte Carlo. This is a city with a downtown, an old town, a new town, different areas, different feelings, different moods. Nice, as they say, is different. For more than two centuries, kings and queens have made the Côte d'Azur their summer home. Intellectuals and artists have argued their way round the Corniche. Pablo Picasso was a favourite. Rock and roll royalty like the Rolling Stones. Well, they moved here in 1971 to avoid British taxes. They recorded Exile on Main Street in the basement of the Nelcott Villa. Millions of people come here to enjoy the unique experience of the south of France. The Côte d'Azur is amongst the most desirable seaside settings in the world, which is interesting because the beach itself at Nice is far from perfect. It's all pebbles and rocks, at least the public part is. But then you get to the private beaches where, for the right price, a deck chair, an umbrella and a perfect view is all yours. Here I can watch one of the great holiday destinations come to life. Oh yes, Nice is so nice. Tough job. And finally on first move up raw in Germany. That's the biggest hint you're getting. Now just watch this. What do you think it is? Hmm, this mammal was briefly caught on camera on the southern edge of Berlin. And yes, it seems that a suspected lion is on the loose. Police are urging people to stay indoors for their safety. As of 13.10, I can inform you that the lioness has not yet been sighted. This means that our measures here in Kleinmachau are still running at full speed at the moment. We are searching together, the police and also other forces are trying to find the lioness. Now, apparently the police say no zoos have even reported a missing lion. I hope the keeper wasn't breakfast on the way out. Joking. That's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.